Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. Welcome to our April episode of This Month at the EU with Dr. Donner, our expert in politics and economics at the EU capital in Brussels. Welcome once again, Dr. Donner. Hello. As always, April has been a busy month in Europe with national elections in Hungary, a British-French-American airstrike on Syria, Macron's state visit to Washington, D.C., and a number of other developments. We won't be able to discuss everything, so today I'd like to focus on three topics. First, the elections in Hungary. Second, the political and financial situation in Greece. And third, China's growing influence in the EU. So let's start with the elections in Hungary on April 8th. The right-wing candidate, Viktor Orban, was re-elected for a third term. Furthermore, his Fidesz party has obtained a supermajority in parliament, and it looks like Orban has a firm grip on all of the reins of power. We have said many times that Europe is turning to the right, and in Hungary we have yet another piece of evidence that confirms this conclusion. Mm -hmm. Dr. Donner, can you talk a little bit about the political situation in Hungary? I think it's it's been no surprise that... Uh, the Fidesz party of Orban Viktor had another really breathtaking victory. Although there are still some reports about irregularities here and there, the overall picture is that this indeed reflects at least the, the, the will of the majority of people. And I think it, what is very interesting is what makes people support this party. In order to understand this, it's perhaps interesting to to have a look at how successful is Viktor Orban or has he been in the last in the last periods during his last periods in office Orban has he started once his political life as an a atypical politician then in the late 90s and ever ever afterwards he went more and more to the right one shouldn't forget that there is a party right to him called Jobbik, which is the Hungarian word for better. For what? Better. It's better. the comparative of good. It, it's, an, it's a type of a Nazi party. So Orban always had the, the idea of vote for me if you have a right-wing uh, idea. I guarantee that not all ties to the rest of Europe will be cut. Orban is not a silly man. He knows quite well how to sell... Uh, the not too convincing results of his last term in office. Um, there are a few uh, decisions he made that probably helped to to tie the rather slim and always threatened new middle class uh, of Hungary to his party. Uh, the one was he saved. Uh, many young couples owning private property, but not owning it, but 
having mortgages with banks. Unfortunately, these mortgages were not in Hungarian foreigns, but in Japanese yen or Swiss francs. Um, it's a phenomenon you see in many East European countries with rather a high lending rates. During the, the years prior to the financial crisis, so five, six, even seven, many decided to take out their mortgage in a currency that offers record low interest rates. As long as the foreign would remain stable against this currency, everything would have been fine. This was not the case. The foreign crashed, fell abruptly against the Swiss franc, which as such uh, had a 20% more than 20% rise in value in January 2015. What does this mean for a Hungarian couple? It means that they, out of their foreign salary, uh, they have to pay now 40% higher monthly installments for their mortgage, which they probably couldn't. Then Orban, Victor, uh, passed a quick legislation allowing people to pay back their F Swiss francs loans at a rather... Uh, theoretical rate of exchange to the bank in foreigns. So many would scratch all the family fortunes in foreigns together, pay back at an exchange rate which had not nothing to do or very little to do with reality. The banks were expropriated so they... they this amounts to a government subsidy for mortgage holders. Of course it is. It's a government subsidy for a certain class of people but it saved these people their property. So they would vote for him. The, the second thing is far more emotional. That's the anti-Muslim invasion, in inverted commas, uh, horror vision he painted. Uh, the the uh, Fidesz party affiliated media, you, you could read articles that places like Copenhagen or Hamburg were firmly already under Muslim control. All this, of course, is nonsense, but the... The, the average Hungarian a newspaper reader couldn't double-check. So what you call disinformation played another role. A horror picture of West Great Western Metropolis uh, has been painted. And by comparison, he says, well, Hungarians, look, I've reduced all the gypsy beggars. They are all gone from Budapest. And they, uh, I will stop this by means of force and fences. Uh, and this clearly paid off as well. Uh, so did his stance, we stick within Europe. He would never leave Europe. He'd be bankrupt the day after. But we stick with Europe, but we tell them what to do. I do want to talk about his electoral strategy a little bit more. You mentioned he was focusing on two constituencies. First, the budding middle class that might be able to own their own homes one day, and they got a subsidy to pay, help pay their mortgages after the crash of their currency. But his second constituency and his second political strategy is blatantly nationalistic. Mm -hmm. He claims he is protecting ordinary Hungarians from immigrants and foreigners and non-Hungarian minorities like the Roma people. Mm -hmm. This type of rhetoric puts him in direct conflict with the political ideas and values of most of the established democracies in Western Europe. 
although his brand of nationalist populism has some support. How poisonous could his relationship between Orban or the relationship between Orban and the rest of the EU become now that he has a full grip on power in Hungary? Well, uh, what we've already know is this so-called Visegrad Nations sub-EU committee. This is. Could you explain that, please? Yeah. Well, that is a few East and Central European countries like Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, and they more or less su support and even the Czech Republic after the latest uh, uh, election they had, which went through almost unobserved in the West. And the new Czech Prime Minister in his campaign wasn't too far apart from what Orban Victor is saying. And if you look at Poland, there you have an infringement on local democracy. So they already have a special subgroup opposing Brussels, or we should rather say the Juncker version of Brussels. This is certainly um, a risk for the EU. There is today practically no chance to to make sure that you have a unanim unanimous vote on issues in Brussels. So Brussels is becoming a lame duck. On the other hand, one shouldn't go that far as to, 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 to imagine that these countries are about to leave, like England. Uh, they couldn't afford it. Do they have a formal structure? Are they, are they meeting regularly? Yes. Do they have a constituency yeah. in the European no, Parliament? No, 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 of course not. This is a. They, I think there are regular or semi-regular, pseudo-regular meetings, uh, at whatever level. Every now and then, especially when it's about populist issues such as the immigration thing, these states will then publish their opinion as a fraction of the EU. The EU is becoming more fractioned now than it used to be ten uh, years ago. This is not the threat of more whatever exits from Brussels. These countries, and none of these countries, could afford to leave the, the European Union. They'd be on their back belly up within a couple of weeks. They illustrate a bit the, the, uh, the weaknesses of the EU construction, uh, which allows them to slow down processes, to, to slow down votes, to slow down development at their discretion. So the the strategy there there is another a third pillar that is the the hate campaign against the U.S. investor Soros. Soros is a Hungarian. You mean a, a third factor to Orbán's political yeah, that success? Yeah, that plays to the the poor Hungarian population and is an undeclared form of anti-Semitism and anti-capitalism because Soros is associated with being both. A Jew, a traditional Hungarian Jew, extremely well-to-do, rich and powerful, and extremely uh, open towards humanitarian generosity. All this, of course, uh, doesn't fit in within the picture of the Fidesz party. I should have added yet another type of uh, nationalism that Orban practices. It's not only uh, hatred of minorities like the Roma, but he is... If not openly anti-Semitic, he has a dog whistle that speaks to some anti-Semitism amongst. Uh, he's very Hungarians. clever in this. He he uh, he plays. His his party is good and good cop and bad cop within one house. So you would see him uh, denouncing anti-Semitism, 
I mean, he's an, he's an idiot. Jobbik would do the all the other way around. They play on the Hungarian history, which is dreadful. No, but he he would do he would have it here, and then he would call it back. As if Europe didn't have enough problems, the financial crisis in Greece is about to rear its ugly head once again. At the end of March, so just last month. Greece received 6.7 billion euros in bailout funds. So this was the last tranche of cash mm -hmm. from the Troika, 6.7 billion euros. By the end of the summer, so at the end of August to be precise, Greece will be on its own mm -hmm. financially once again. And I should put on its own in scare quotes. Is Greece really in a position to stand on its own two feet or will there yet be another bailout? There is very conflicting information. Uh, it's full of contradictions uh, as to this topic. Uh, let's face it, the idea when the third bailout package was negotiated in autumn, summer, autumn uh, 2015, it had to be explained to many uh, peoples throughout Europe, none more so than the German nation. Basically, it had been thought that there would never be a third package. Uh, the discussion is a bit similar now. There will never be a fourth package. I'm not too confident about that. Things have gone too far. And now the both camps, so the Syriza camp with Mr. With Mr. Tsipras and the Brussels the Eurofiles with Herr Juncker and, and associates, in a way, have they share their destination. They have a common aim. The aim is... Do not let this fail. So both Tsipras, the Prime Minister of Greece, and Juncker, the head of the European Commission, are agreed that Greece ought not to have yet another bailout. <laughs> for, for quite contrary motives and, 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 and uh, strategies, for the Europeans, a fourth one would be a disaster. Because they would have to explain, I mean, the German government would have to explain to the electorate that out of a sudden... After a month of positive news in inverted commas from the Greek markets, out of a sudden, like in 2015, where everything was peace, love and pizza, now they need a, a new package. For the Euro idealists in Brussels, this of course is a fourth package would put paid to their strategies. I mean, nobody would have any trust in what they guarantee about the future of Greece. We, we come back to these conflicting, contradictory information. You can read in media, Germany or elsewhere, mostly in Germany, because the German population is the most critical. You could read that now their, their primary balance has developed to a, a fantastic degree of more than 3.5%. The primary balance is nothing. I mean, they say it's a surplus. There is no surplus in Greece. The primary balance is the, the delta between the uh, uh, financial revenue of, of, of a state and its expenses minus the debt service. Unfortunately, the debt service is the most devastating of all expenses the Greek government can do or does have to make. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you count this out, uh, you get a picture which may look rosy at first glance, but if you go a bit deeper, you'll be horrified. So this is what we call in the States fuzzy maths. Yeah, probably, so you're yeah. saying that a positive picture is being painted through some creative accounting. Well, no. Uh, the positive 
picture is being painted through some not mentioning or uh, a, a fact. The fact is that as we speak, minute by minute, the Greek debt load rises by 18,000 euros. It already amounts to 349 billion euros. Uh, the annual tax revenue is about 88 billion euros. So a school kid could figure out how Greece could ever pay back this debt load. Never, never. As economists, we speak in a very rude way about Greece. That has nothing to do with the population. The population is suffering. With the exception of those who benefit from politi party political cronyism, which is still there as it has always been there throughout modern Greek history. The average Greek family, they might suffer. They might suffer to a degree which we in other parts of Europe cannot imagine. That goes to healthcare services, that goes to uh, um, pensions, uh, pensions whatever. But what we do have to criticise and do have to really critically look at is the amount of cronyism and corruption within the government proper and there hasn't been any there haven't been any changes worthwhile worthwhile this name uh, government em employees haven't been reduced uh, there is a, there's a greek word for it. Uh, the the singular is metaklitos the plural is metakliti that is a civil servant doing whatever uh, uh, running a public uh, swimming pool but as a civil servant, and for party connections, he's now taken and he's appointed a councillor of a whatever of a state company. How many metakliti there are in Greece is unknown. Tens of thousands, probably, and they benefit from this. That's a reward for party allegiance. Mm -hmm. So this has nothing to do with a reform of state administrative structures. But it's still the old cronyism that continues. Look at privatizations. Some people say privatizations have been a success story. In, in Greece. Uh, in Greece. Uh, that, that was part of the obligations for the bailout packages. Look at the old airport in, in Athens. It's there rotting uh, since 2001. The political socio-economic reality, the clientelism, the clientele-based promotion within the state administration and the degree of corruption or, or shadow economy, if you, if you prefer. Greece, in many parts, politically speaking, resembles Venezuela more than Denmark. That's, that's quite worrying. So again, going back to the question, is Greece in a position to stand on its own two feet or will there be yet another bailout? What I'm hearing here is Greece can't stand on its own two feet, so there will have to be yet another bailout or there will be a collapse. Well, there is probably a way out, one nobody talks about. Uh, the fact that, uh, that the Greek government will be forced to refinance itself at the markets is a huge hurdle to overcome. And I can't imagine that through basic business-related terms of investment, a shrewd investor would really invest in Greece. The bureaucracy is frail, uh, judiciary is even worse. So I think investing there is still, to me, uh, a bit more of a quagmire than of a crystal clear structure. Yet, if the European Central Bank were to declare the new Greece after 
the third bailout package, now ready to issue bonds on the markets. The state issuing bonds, the bankrupt banks buying them and handing them in as securities in inverted commas with the European Central Bank. So you could perpetualize the the Greek access to credit and, and loans. So the Greek debt would be, then be default subsidized by... Well, like the Italian debt. The German taxpayer and yeah, the European the, Central Bank. That's what the in institutions utterly deny, because they fight deflation. In fact, what we are doing is, and what to a certain extent the Americans do as well, is that banks and state cooperate in order to create refinancing, sp maneuvering space for the public domain. Uh, this is a, a huge question for future generations because, I mean, the already existing debt load in Europe, one has to stress it again, ten, almost 10.5 trillion euros is, uh, is fantastic. It's just fan and I think nobody has an idea how we ever get rid of this. No, I, th I, have, I, I have my doubts as to the refinanceability of, a, of the Greek government and if this were to collapse in say spring t 2019 with a European election in May 2019 when where there will be no more of a Juncker commission and there were the acting majorities and parliaments and the acting cooperation basis might be shattered because if we if we transpose the results from national elections to the European election, we might not have the two huge blocks, Social Democrats and mm -hmm. Socialists and Conservative parties of mainstream character dealing and wheeling it out, all out but we might have a, a vast number of conflicting parties with few or little European common aims. Do you think a, uh, another Greek crisis will empower more right-wing parties in the rest of Europe? Would this improve the AfD's prospects in Germany? Would it approve the prospects of someone like Marine Le Pen? Or are these issues not really connected? Well, uh, Greece as such has no power to, to bring down any bigger European economy, even if the country went bust. What it could bring down, crushing from the sky, is the idea that the European superstate, in, in inverted commas, has a future the way that's been trying to demonstrate to the public for the last 10 or 15 years. Thereby, of course, affecting trust into the euro or trust into investment in Europe. But foreign investors know pretty well that a few European economies, as the German economy, are still going well and, 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 and strong. Uh, no, but I'm but I'm thinking right wing parties who also, besides their nationalism, have some hatred, maybe not hatred, but aren't friendly or happy about the EU in general. They would use yet another crisis in in Greece to say the EU needs urgent reform, or we need to create more distance between ourselves and the EU, or we need to get more sovereignty back from well, the EU. You're right. We probably mean the same, but the uh, I think the extreme right wing parties have their issue, and that's migration, because that is far more emotional, and people feel far more touched by it. Uh, it's easier for an emotional campaign, whereas a euro campaign with all these mechanisms, 
uh, people just fail to understand. This would happen if ever we would have a, a chain event of bank failures, bank defaults within Europe, mm-hmm. and people actually losing money, probably not in Germany. But the bailout guarantee for the individual bank account in Italy is on very, 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 very soft foundation, so it won't work. Whereas in Germany, people would get back what they had been promised. This mm-hmm. will never happen in Portugal. So that could emotionalize the Euro thing. God beware that it was, would, would happen. That, that could really turn our society upside down. But I don't think it's about to happen. What I see is that no stone will be left unturned to avoid a Greek disaster, even after a few weeks or months of independence in inverted commas. It drags along. What is so interesting is that people have gained the idea that the financial crisis has been overcome. Which you, is not, you mean the average European yes, citizen in a Western European country? Right. If you, well, at least in those, like Germany, for instance, or Austria, because you don't read any, anything anymore within the media, the new emotional thing is migration and, and refugees. The idea with the crisis overcome, the crisis isn't being talked about anymore. There is no immediate threat for banks, but if you look at how weak and frail banks in Italy banks in Portugal and banks in Greece are, might bereave you of speech. Any further difficulties with Greece and any, any clouds on the glossy picture of a Greek recovery made by Mr Tsipras would stimulate traditional conservative parties and even part of the socialists to move away slowly but surely from their once totally embracing positive idea of the European Union superstate. All right, let's move on to our third and final topic today, and that's China. We see all of these fissures in Europe. We see the fissures between the Eastern European countries and the Western European countries. Within nations in Europe, we see fissures between hard-right parties, centrist parties. We see fissures also, as we talked about with Greece, with corruption, the anti-corruption standards uh, in, in Western Europe are different than those in other countries. So going back to China now, how is China influencing EU politics and the European economy? And is it somehow finding a way within these fissures to grow in its influence? I think the Chinese are very steadfast and very uh, strategic in their approaches because it's a planned approach from A to Z. Uh, there is nothing emotional in it because their population has no say in all this. That's what the gov- the ruling circles and the financial elite uh, and, and China is becoming more and more a, a centrally ruled and governed uh, uh, thing like it used to be under the reign of Mao Zedong. China's been very successful economically. It's an enormous e- economic power. It holds uh, enormous amounts of the U.S. public debt. It's probably not that much interested in the EU public debt, though there are huge investment. But what they like to do is to make use of the huge diversities within the EU member states so they invest heavily here and there. They travel to to Greece. They honour the Greek dream we've been discussing by 
investing in privatizations. They're not really interesting. And a quick return on this. The return is not money waste. The return is strategic. So if they wish to continue this new Silk Road right into the heart of Europe, why not tackle Greece? Uh, so the Silk Road is China's plan to have a logistical trading route that yeah, goes it's, from it's, China it's, through exactly. Central Asia into Europe. It's a, it's, it's a highway for trade and investment uh, from China to in interesting markets. And Europe certainly is, is one for, for Chinese products. And in other European member states, they, they go ahead in a completely different manner. In Germany, they buy up small, highly effective and efficient uh, start-up and, and, and medium and small enterprises with patents galore, with access to high-tech technology they wouldn't have themselves. So if you had a small, a small and medium enterprise with a few outright the interesting patents the world over, many such firms exist in Germany, they would offer the owner a juicy bit of extra money, and then they own this. They first wouldn't change anything. They're not interested in bringing down quality or firing the experts, but they own access to high-class to high technology. And that's very simple, because money they have galore. In Greece or Hungary, for instance, it's, it's different. There is no high technology to be bought. Where there, they go for political influence. And there was once, a couple of months ago, a, a debate on whether or not how infringements on human, right, human rights issues should be mentioned in European uh, documents concerning China. That was through Greece and Hungary that we are no longer able in Europe to officially denounce arrestings in, in, in China or torture. Even. All this uh, because then the countries closer to them politically not they're not politically closed but they're on their payroll i mean hungary and greece both are economically frail in dire straits and in dire needs of investment if so, the chinese come they are there lock stock and battle so you're saying the strategy from china they invest in economically weak countries in order to gain political influence yes. with the European Commission and with the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. And that's part of a longer-term strategy Yeah, exactly. to do it's, what? It's like what they do in, 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 in African and Central America countries. There they, in, there they invest uh, in order to have access to, to crude material, which is of, of importance of them, or to energy supply. So all this is a strategic investment. There is no difference. I mean, their investment has more of a strategic than of a business nature. The business effect is of secondary importance. Uh, I, I wouldn't reproach this China doing it, but I'd rather congratulate them that they are so that they are so intelligent. We have very little we can do against it. If governments like the Hungarian or the Greek government can't change the situation within the country and they definitely have no, no way of doing this. I can understand that they, they are looking for uh, support from, from, from the outside. So when you go back a few weeks in history, you see the, the great announcement of US massive US sanctions against China. The Europeans were afraid because if the Chinese had found it more difficult to access the US market, they would have flooded the European market, of course. I mean, they are an export-needy nation, so that they would have carried all their, their products to the European market. 
you think that there's any reason for Europeans, by and large, to be concerned by China's growing influence? Difficult to say. China is a huge market. If it weren't for China, the German uh, automobile industry would now find it hard with the restrictions to, with the access to Russia. Car sales not too booming too high within our saturated markets. China is probably the number one client for German luxury cars. There has to be a balance, but this balance can never be brought about by sanctions or trade war. This is self-destruction to the extreme, and it's a 19th century outdated policy. I, I wasn't suggesting that, but again, from an economic perspective, of course, it's better to have uh, good relations with a huge, huge market like China. But the concern, of course, would be political. Is the EU's role partly to uphold some sense of liberal values in the world, or should the Europeans just say, listen... It's not our wall. We're not going to get involved in any of these issues anymore. This is a this is a tightrope walk. Uh, it's a tightrope walk, and I'm I'm a bit afraid. Uh, I don't want to, to to appear cynical. I'm a bit afraid that all these human relation, human rights talk is more directed against our own population than towards China, where people might never know about it because the average Chinese has no access to this information or isn't even interested in it. Clearly, one has to come to an arrangement, but the, 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 the liberal trade we are interested in keeping up makes it impossible or highly difficult for us to, 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 to intertwine political preferences and requests for change with access to, to markets. What we could criticise, and I think the Chinese would react because they are strategic thinkers, is that if you can buy up my company at will, I should have the right to do the same in China. So tit for tat, there has to be an equal footing. Another thing is intellectual property. That's a very crucial issue, and I think it has to be discussed with the Chinese again and again. Uh, if you cannot guarantee intellectual property, investing there puts your, your enterprise at great risk. If you negotiate with them, and at the end you are happy not to have their system look like a Swiss Cantonese democracy, but they would guarantee a fair treatment of your investment and a fair treatment of your intellectual rights, you would might have a success. They are they they are strategic dealers. There is no military. They don't wish to conquer Europe. That, that's nonsense. I was not going to discuss the airstrikes against Syria. But it seems like one difference between at least France and Britain's attitude towards China versus their attitudes towards Syria is they're not going to press China too hard on any human rights issues or the EU will not say anything because of the markets. And yet for a country like Syria, they're only too happy to go and use their military might against the Syrian regime because there's no threat, economic threat at least, to doing so. So it's a way again to placate their own emotional populations by saying we're standing up for human rights but they would never do such a thing against China well god beware the, the basic fact is you Americans could have done all that on your own but it it, it it makes the picture look differently if a few French bombers buzz in the air as well the payload they can throw down wouldn't make a big change you, you have more planes on one carrier than the French could put in the air 
the this is and, and the same is true for the Brits. Please, we are far away from the Battle of Waterloo. No, but I think this was uh, this was for the gallery, whether or not it really changes um, the behaviour pattern of a regime uh, like the one Assad, Mr. Assad stands for, uh, is highly, highly uh, dubious. Because, to my knowledge, his military strength ha hasn't been crippled uh, in a massive way. Uh, that was for the gallery more than for, uh, for the battlefield. And for, for obvious reasons, because uh, there is a, uh, <laughs> the danger of, of a military direct confrontation with Russia. The Russians will never uh, let loose their hold on their military bases and these bases they can only keep with Assad or whoever close to Assad in power so they will never let this go and the West has not nobody and no institution to replace Assad with I can't see any institution worthwhile to be put on the throne uh, without the risk of replacing one evil by the other so the West is in a very weak position in Syria. Uh, the military option in Syria clearly uh, has no future. Yet there is no way of stopping this war, which isn't a war in a classical sense, because there you can't even decide which party is belligerent and which isn't. Uh, if you look at whatever map of Syria where which group holds territory, you see a completely atomized map of ground control the Syrian question is out of control and out of hand, and I think uh, in the long term uh, the West will lose interest in all this. If whoever used the chemical weapons, be this Assad himself, be this one of his commanders for whatever reason, nobody knows, nobody will ever know. It's a crime to do it, but in the end millions have been killed in Syria by conventional weapons, so others were m brutally murdered by poisonous gas. The fate of the humans there is deplorable. It's, it's a crying shame that this still is possible in our world today. But we are learning it with an open mouth and big eyes that this is the case. And we have nothing to stop it. Indeed, I, I fear that a number of these crises will be continuing over the next months. Certainly we'll have to reevaluate the situation in Greece in the coming months. We'll also have to look again at Italy. It seems like the negotiations to create a new government have stalled, but maybe we'll see some developments by next month on that front. Thank you again, Dr. Downer. I look forward to seeing you again in one month. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy The Transatlanticist, please support the show by subscribing for free with your podcast provider. Also, please be so kind as to give us a five-star rating and review. If you would like to provide comments, suggest topics, or recommend guests, I'd love to hear from you. Please send me an email at asola at americacentrum.de. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.